Hello and welcome everyone to the IU podcast series. My name is Jyotsna Puri or Joe, and I'm head of the Independent Evaluation Unit or the IEU of the Green Climate Fund, also called the GCF. The IEU was established by the GCF board to provide objective assessments of the performance and results of the Green Climate Fund, including its funded activities, its effectiveness and its efficiency. The IEU's mandate is divided into four functions, evaluations, learning and communication, providing advice and building capacity, and engagement. Our new podcast series is one of many engagement tools we are using to make the Green Climate Fund faster, better, and smarter. Indeed, the tagline for the IEU. To learn more about the work of the IEU, please visit our website at ieu.greenclimate.fund. I really hope that you enjoy our curated content of lectures and speakers from our workshops and events throughout the year. Our curated lectures and speakers will do lectures related to climate development and evaluations and indeed showcase state-of-the-art globally. To keep up with the latest episodes, please subscribe to our Anchor channel as well as other major podcast providers. Don't forget to tweet us at our Twitter handle at GCF underscore eval. We're always open to comments and suggestions, of course. I'm really excited to invite you to our first podcast episode that will feature Kevin Adams. Kevin is a researcher at the Stockholm Environment Institute, and Kevin's area of expertise is in global climate governance, with a particular focus on climate finance and transboundary climate risks. This episode is a recording from our lunch talk with Kevin on the 30th of April, 2019. He discusses how many climate risks are not contained within country borders, but rather flow across regions. In his talk, he explores agricultural supply chains and indeed looks at key crops that help to influence global food security. A link to his presentation PDF and more about the Stockholm Environment Institute is included in our show notes. Welcome, enjoy, and thank you for listening. On this slide, so please find me and tweet at me as well uh, if you're going to be tweeting anything from this presentation. Um, a little bit on, on the topic, um, climate finance and the challenge of transboundary climate risk. So we work on a number of different things at SEI. This is one of the kind of newer areas that we're pushing more into. It's a bit, it's a bit unusual. It's kind of a, a frontier for adaptation policy, we think. So I figured it would be a, a nice big draw to get a, a bunch of bodies in the room for, for this particular talk. Um, but maybe a little bit about what we uh, as SEI do, generally speaking. So, so we, uh, the Stockholm Environment Institute, uh, an international nonprofit research and policy organization working on uh, environment and development challenges. Um, the tagline we like to use is that we aim to bridge science and policy. So what we really are is an independent research-based institution that has a policy focus. So all of the work that we do is intended to have a policy impact or a policy angle to it. And our work spans climate, water, air, land use issues, you name it, we work on all manner of things. Um, 
We have three sort of kind of key pillars of work, uh, research, policy making, and, and capacity building. So we work on research projects that have policy relevance. Uh, we participate in international policy making processes, including with, with the GCF. Uh, and we work to build the capacity of developing country partners to, to address their needs as well. Um, there are roughly 300 of us, a bit less, all around the world. We've got our main headquarters is in Stockholm. We've also got SEI Tallinn in Estonia. Two offices in the UK, York and Oxford. Three in the US, Boston, Seattle, and Davis. And then we've got three offices in the Global South, SEI Latin America is brand new in Bogota, SEI Africa in Nairobi, and SEI Asia in Bangkok. So we're all over the place. We're a quite big institution, and, and there are uh, very many of us. So you might meet other folks from SEI uh, around in this space, and we're happy to put you in touch with colleagues on particular issues if, if that's of interest. Um, but on to the topic of the, the talk today. So the research question that, that we set out to address with this particular piece that we'd like to share um, is how does considering transboundary climate risks complicate the policy approach to adaptation finance? Um, and this might seem broad and technical, but I promise we're going to walk you guys through it over the next half hour or so here. Um, Taking a lesson from Joe and our colleagues at the IU, we've learned to start with our key messages at the beginning, so when I inevitably run out of time in the end, at least I've hit the, the main points. So key things that people should take home from this. So one, including transnational climate impacts and the way we conceive of climate risks complicates our view of adaptation finance significantly. That's the first point. Um, on the allocation of finance, new actors emerge as potentially important recipients of finance, including many Latin American countries, some in the Middle East, and including some highly developed agricultural incumbents. We'll get into that in a minute. I know that might sound quite strange. Um, on the provision of finance, uh, the perspective from this reasserts age-old issues around the rationale for participating in the international aid architecture, so we can't lose those considerations. And most important for the GCF perspective is that we think that there's a role for core systemic actors that might have to play in grappling with these concerns by working to reduce risk at a systems level, taking a systemic approach to climate adaptation finance. So, what's the plan for today? Um, I'm going to tear through the first section, setting the stage, key debates in the climate finance arena. Given that this is the GCF, I'm pretty willing to, to take a guess that most of you are familiar with those things. Um, we'll talk a little bit about what a transnational climate risk is, um, we'll go through a thought experiment that we've done on agricultural risk and supply chain specifically, and then think about the way forward implications for research and policy. Um, so setting the stage, key debates in the climate finance arena. The number one thing that I'm sure all of you are aware of is that it's all about this $100 billion goal. We know that finance has to be new and additional. It's supposed to be balanced between mitigation and adaptation. We're going to be scaling up to $100 billion by 2020, and we aim to address the priorities and needs of developing country parties, those, including those that are particularly vulnerable to climate change. This is well known in this room, I'm sure. Um, this leaves us with two key questions. Where do we sort of go from here? One, how do we raise further funding? We know from a lot of estimates about climate finance that this isn't going to be enough. And, because we know that this isn't enough, how do we allocate the funding that we do have? So far, these debates have been settled, but not in a particularly robust way, in my opinion. So on the question of how we raise further funding, uh, we've extended our commitments at this point through 2025, with negotiations ongoing for a new target after 2025. Um, and there's increasing interest in involving private sector actors in this conversation. On the question of allocating finance, we have decided to sort of focus on certain groups in the GCF context, this is LDCs, SIDS in Africa, um, but we've also got this sort of country-driven model where countries, especially in the GCF, apply for projects and they kind of dictate how we should be allocating our finance, but there isn't really a sort of overarching approach to understanding where our finance needs to or should be going. Um, 
And I think there are two primary assumptions embedded in this. One, that the primary driver for adaptation finance provision is benevolence. And two, that risks exist only contained within national boundaries. Um, and I think when we add the concept of transboundary climate risk to this conversation, we start to see that, that neither of these things are necessarily true. Um, and we need to think about how adding that complexity to the conversation uh, challenges these things. So, increasing complexity, recognizing transnational climate risks. What in the world is a transnational climate risk? Um, this is something that we've been working on at SEI for a few years now. Uh, the, the seminal paper on it was uh, by a colleague of ours, Magnus Benzi, and a few others in 2016, which produced something that we called the Transnational Climate Impacts Index. Um, it essentially argued that some risks were transnational and therefore complicated the way we understand risk exposure. Um, this has also been published again recently in Global Environmental Change, so there is a journal article out at, on it as well that goes through this approach. And what the paper principally argues that there are four key pathways through which risks can flow across borders between countries. Um, the really obvious one that we tend to start with is the biophysical pathway. So these are things like shared river systems, ecosystems, and, and things that really concretely cross borders. Um, to take a step outside of that, we also think that there are really important linkages to think about in trade systems, for example. So agricultural supply chains, what we're going to be talking about today. Um, there's also relevance for people flows, so migration, tourism patterns, finance flows, like remittances, foreign direct investment. In an increasingly globalizing world, our countries are more connected than ever before, and to pretend that risks, including risks from climate change, exist only within a national context is to miss a huge piece of the picture. So we need to start doing a little bit of thinking about how these sorts of risks, as they move, can be managed. So, when we start to think about financing transnational climate risk reduction, we know that in the past we've, we've typically worked with countries like this, country A, so uh, a country with high direct climate risk. So think of this, again, in the GCF context, LDCs, SIDS, Africa. So we know that a lot of these countries have high direct country climate risks, and maybe we should be focusing our adaptation finance on those actors. But by adding transnational climate impacts to the conversation, we start to wonder, are there another set of countries that maybe we should be worried about that we hadn't thought about in the past? Maybe there's a country with a high transnational risk, right? In the TCI index that Magnus and colleagues have produced, we found that some countries, like Belgium, for example, right, a very small economy that's very import dependent, might be very vulnerable to these sorts of transnational risks. Maybe they, are maybe they are deserving of some sort of adaptation support internationally to focus on these things. It also raises the question of where are those risks coming from? There is a producing country somewhere out there that has a link in a supply chain or a place where people are flowing from that are then leading risks to be absorbed in other places. And they might be doing this unwittingly, but those risks must be produced somewhere to then be consumed somewhere else. You might also have a country like this, which is adding resilience to the system. This is kind of an unexpected result of the work we've been doing. So there might be a country that, in the agricultural context, is producing more rather than less in a, in a warmer world. So how do we deal with actors like that? And last but not least, there might be actors that operate at the systems level, so that kind of sit above this picture and are looking at the total supply chain and have an opportunity to intervene at a systems perspective rather than in a bilateral perspective. From a quantitative perspective, we've got a lot of work, uh, including the ND Gain Index, on countries that have high direct exposure to climate risks. There are quite a few different approaches to this. ND Gain is one of the most popular ones. We've recently produced the TCI Index on countries that have high transboundary risk exposure, but at this point, nobody's really done any thinking about 
which countries may or may not be producing these risks. So we started to do a little bit of thinking about how those countries might go about being identified, and then from a policy perspective, what does this mean about how we should manage those risks? So the thought experiment. So in order to kind of dig into this a little bit more, it helps to take it from this abstract place where we've started off and think a little bit about a specific case. So we'd like to focus now on agricultural transnational risks, particularly for key uh, staple, staple crops. So when we think about how we begin to assess these, um, what we've gone ahead and done, and this is preliminary results, we're hoping to publish this a little bit later on in the year, so you guys are getting a bit of a sneak peek. Um, what we've gone ahead and done so far is we, we've begun to combine several climate impact models with agricultural trade data and food security indicators for seven key crops. Key might be used a little loosely for the last one. Um, there are some limitations to this. Our trade information is not dynamic, uh, and climate impact models don't include extreme weather events or other shocks. Um, which seems like an enormous oversight, and that's because it is. These are the models that the IPCC uses to model agricultural production, and it's a huge problem that this isn't included. But it's very difficult to think about ways that shocks and slow onset events both work together in this context. So it's really difficult to integrate these modeling perspectives. So we're aware it's a problem, but it's not our fault, we promise. Um, so we've gone ahead and combined the data. Uh, our seven key crops are maize, rice, wheat, soy, sugarcane, and coffee, both types of beans. Uh, we've got a few different RCP scenarios that we've run this for uh, and a couple of different time stamps. Um, the essential research approach is to build these pairwise tables of consuming countries and producing countries. So there's a country that produces a crop, produces some coffee, and another country will therefore consume it. And what we can do is we can add this up with the projected climate impact in the producing country and the import flow dependency of the consuming country to get an overall list for a particular crop about which relationships are particularly risky and which exporters on a global scale are introducing a lot of risk into the system. And while the results are preliminary, we have started to do this for the major crops that we have. So some of the particularly risky flows, um, Brazilian maize to Bolivia has come up as a potential problem, Hungarian maize to Estonia, we've got Brazilian soy across the board on the bottom there. Um, and again, we can also add up across producing countries to understand which are introducing the most risk to the system as a whole. So the country of highest risk export across the board, every category, Brazil, major exporter, also a high risk to climate change. We also found, somewhat to our surprise, that there are a number of agricultural incumbent countries that, according to the climate impact models, are expected to actually produce a bit more of several key crops in a warmer world. So countries like the US, China, Chile, which again raises questions about how do you deal with countries that might be introducing resilience into this system from a global perspective? What, what sort of role do they play? Because they're, they're not adding risk, they're reducing it potentially. And what are the political implications of having the US or Russia take an ever larger piece of the trade pie, for example? So these are questions we hope to answer in the future. future. Um, thinking about better ways of presenting the data, we started to think about producing some of the maps, but this is pretty coarse data and isn't exactly helpful. Um, one of the really powerful examples, I think, is the coffee example. So this is the model we've got for Arabica coffee beans for RCP 8.5. And what we see here is that globally, Brazil accounts for something like 50% of all of the risk in the coffee supply chain to all importers all around the world. Um, this is also true for robusta beans. It's three countries primarily, that's primarily, that account for most of the risk. Vietnam is about 30%, Indonesia is 18 Brazil, again, uh, pretty high up on the list, about 13%. Um, 
We can also dig into particular countries and see what their risk import profiles look like. So Germany specifically, uh, Brazil again accounts for something like 60% of the Arabica bean import risk. Um, and again, a similar picture for Robusta. Coffee is a pretty easy example because we don't have any countries that are expected to produce more coffee under climate change, which makes it a bit easier to grapple with. Something that's a bit more tricky is something like maize, Joe's a question. Yeah, a very clarificatory one, which is that when you talk about expo exporting risk, it's clearly not just trade risk, right? It's uh, related to a crop or it's related to adaptation risk? Or could you explain that a little bit? Right, so in this case, the way that we're understanding risk is we, we have a measure of how important a particular import flow is to a country. So we've magnified, we, we, we've, we've assessed how important that risk import flow is by the vulnerability to climate change of the exporter. So we assume all else equal, we're nothing else to change, X percentage of your current imports of this crop are at risk due to climate change and it's coming from this location. That's the way that we're thinking about it. Again, no, no so, but, but is it related to, for example, changes in precipitation of the agriculture exactly. yield or is it related to the infrastructure that you need Right. to export, meaning so the port is no longer viable. Yeah, good question. So the climate impact models we're using are based mostly on climatic factors. So precipitation, nitrogen forcing, changes in carbon in the atmosphere, temperature changes. We haven't dealt with infrastructure. That's a, a totally different ballgame. And, and we hope to add shocks and extreme weather events. It's a little easier than doing infrastructure, but it's still pretty difficult to do. Um, back to the data. Um, maize is a little bit trickier to deal with than the coffee supply chain because we do have these countries on the far right end of the spectrum that are likely to be producing more rather than less. So it's not quite obvious to us how to deal with those countries. So we've got a little bit more work to do in those cases. Um, as with the coffee supply chain, we can also do the same sort of thing and get an understanding of how much risk is coming out of one country in particular. So in the Brazilian supply chain, for example, Brazil is contributing to a huge percentage of the risk of, what's the last country on here? Bolivia. Looks like 40% of the risk that Brazil is exporting goes straight to Bolivia. So we know that the Brazil-Bolivia-Maize relationship is a particularly tense one that perhaps needs to be looked at in more detail. So. Like I said, this is a preliminary data set. We have classified it as a thought experiment rather than a model because what we really hope to do with this rather than model projected risk and projected impacts to make adaptation policy is to start asking some questions about how if we were to account for these factors, if we were to start thinking about this and adding this to our calculus, how does it change the way that we think about adaptation and how we move forward? Um, and I think the way that we've started to think about it at SEI is in terms of evolving decision spaces for climate finance. And historically, the way that we've looked at adaptation financing... We've got another question? Yeah. Sure. Hi. Um, uh, thanks for the presentation. Quick question. Uh, have you tested the model uh, um, in the past? Have you looked into the past data to see if the model has produced accurate results? So again, I would hesitate to, to call it a model. Um, and the, the, the climate impact models we are using have been validated. They're the IPCC models, but we're not necessarily comparing them to, to past data, no, in our case. Again, it's, it's, a, it's an indicative quanti quantifier of, of potential risk flows rather than something to be, to be um, matched to, to past data, essentially. 
Um, right, so evolving decision spaces for climate finance. So historically, the way that we've thought about adaptation financing is on the sort of one-dimensional line. So we've got one factor that we're worried about, we've got climate risks, and we think that at the end of this spectrum, we've got a subset of countries that are most vulnerable to climate risks. This is, again, UNFCCC language. And therefore, we should focus our efforts principally on these countries that are most at risk due to climate change. And when we add something like transboundary risk, we still have this climate risks component, but we also have this additional um, axis of whether or not countries are the source of the risk or the recipient of the risk. So there are some sort of new spaces that emerge as potentially interesting. You've got one set of countries that are high in climate risk and are the source. So these are quite similar to the ones we were just talking about. So high direct risks, but also potentially quite large exporters. We've got these other set of countries on the other side of the spectrum that might not be high in climate risk themselves, but are importing a lot from those at-risk countries and are therefore receiving a lot of the risk. Maybe our finance efforts should focus on them. And we have this third triangle of countries, which we didn't expect at all, but countries that might end up doing a bit better under climate change from an agricultural production perspective. If we've got these countries, what role do they play in increasing the resilience of the overall system, and how do we think about that from a financing perspective? I'm sure that this idea of providing climate finance to developed agricultural incumbents or people to introduce systemic risk has got everyone in here panicked, which I think is why it's important to kind of close out with this um, slide about the ethics of international aid. Because I think at the end of the day, we need to make sure that the principles that are laid out in the UNFCCC, the Paris Agreement, and the GCF Governing Instrument are continuing to undergird the way that we think about adaptation finance. So I think especially coming back to that first assumption that the primary driver of adaptation finance is benevolence, as we start to think about how risks may flow across borders, there are more and more opportunities for countries to say, well, maybe we provide adaptation finance to this place because it's a benefit to us. Maybe adaptation finance should come to this particularly, this country that we're very friendly with because, again, it could be very useful to the international system. So it becomes more of an efficiency question, whereas in the past it might have been historically related to equity or recompense for, for harms and damages done. So I think to, to, maintain, to maintain this strong linkage to the principles laid out in these various documents um, remains a pretty important characteristic of this. A last note on the role of systemic actors, uh, particularly the GCF. I think that there's a role for actors that are sitting outside of this sort of bilateral space. If we start to think about the potential perverse effects of understanding risks as this thing that flows between places rather than as something that sits within a country's borders, there's a need for actors that are able to consider risk at this sort of systemic level. Uh, and I think that there are two types of actors that are well-placed to do this. We've categorized them broadly into implementing actors and financing actors. And financing actors. We think on the implementing actor side, there are actors that might be well-placed to address these risks that could propose projects that cut across national scales. Um, there might be regional actors that work in particular locations that already have good partnerships across borders. It would be a good place to start. There might also be global actors. So we're thinking a little bit in this case about FAO or World Food Program that has a mandate to look specifically at food trade in the food sector that might have some, some role to play in this conversation. We also think, as this gets more and more on the, the table for negotiators to discuss, 
that financing actors might have a role to play. So core systemic actors in the financing space uh, might be able to finance and support cooperative action. Um, so in the GCF context, I know there's a lot of discussion ongoing now about strategic RFPs. Um, one potential option for this, as we've identified that this risk is existing and perhaps not something that the countries are focused on, there could be a strategic RFP for transboundary risk that allows countries to collaborate on these issues and bring them together rather than working separately out of self-interest. Um, to close out, I think at the end of the day, this is really about facilitating risky investments in risky places. Um, if what climate finance is principally about is making sure that we can de-risk our investments in order to, to make sure that we get the right actors where they need to be, um, as we start adding things about transboundary risk to the conversation, we need to start thinking about how we can not only do just transitions for mitigation and make sure that our transitions away from fossil fuels happen in an equitable way, but when we start to think about managing risk and doing a just transition for adaptation, the same conversations are on the table. There is a strong role to play for private sector actors in this case, for example, and it, it would be quite easy to see how a company like Starbucks might move its supply chain away from a risky location towards a less risky one once this is something that's on their books. And if that happens, there's going to be negative impacts for the communities that have lost that income and those livelihoods based on this. So we need to think more and more about the, the just transition elements of risk management and adaptation in addition to mitigation. And at the same time, I think that there's a role here to, to build capacity and deepen global partnerships. Again, that there's a risk as countries see this as more of a self-interested motivation for thinking about adaptation. There's an opportunity here to work with countries on building the capacity to identify these risks and two, learning to do it in, in a way that allows us to collaborate better on this rather than to, to pull further away from one another. A tiny little bit on our planned future work, because there's a lot coming through the pipeline on this. Um, we hope to continue to develop our data set a little bit further. Uh, we'd like to include more crops, more years of trade data, climate scenarios, timescales. Um, we've got a pretty good team at SEI that works on subnational commodity flow data that we'd like to integrate with as well. Um, Obviously, work on incorporating extreme weather events and other shocks is important, uh, and we'd like to develop some visualization tools, hopefully, that are interactive to, to inter engage with the data set as well. Um, we also know that we need context-specific case study work on the geopolitical implications of this and the policy implications, so we've got um, a couple of different projects planned right now on China, Russia, and Latin America. Um, we're doing a bilateral case study on Brazil and Sweden, and Otis and I in particular are working on a, a coffee supply chain study about coffee in, in Germany and Brazil as well. Um, and we'd also like to in the future work on assessments of adaptation options for these core systemic actors to understand what role actors like the FAO or the GCF could play to really facilitate adaptation in this space. Um, and last but not least, we're, we're doing a little bit of work as well supporting the Global Commission on Adaptation's work on transboundary risk. They've asked us to produce a background paper along with colleagues from ODI and IDRI. There's a little teaser for it uh, on the back of the table over there. Um, and we also hope to be doing a little bit more work on the political economy of transboundary climate risk flows uh, in the future. Uh, and that's all for me. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Kevin. So I'm going to use the moderator's privilege to uh, start off the discussion, and then I'm going to encourage all of you to um, at least think of a couple of questions uh, that you can um, um, that you can run past uh, Kevin. So, um, so I had two two groups of questions. First, I noticed that the way that you're thinking about risk is. Um, uh, about transboundary risk is essentially a measure of how concentrated trade flows are for specific commodities. 
So if 40% of Brazilian coffee is going to Bolivia, then clearly 40% of the overall risk that Brazilian coffee faces is going to be received by Bolivia. But there are other sources of risk. So for example, disease strains. And these change as well as climate changes. And there is then an implicit assumption that as you put in that variability in climate and because your, your um, genome um, ecosystem changes in countries that you will be transporting those as well. So I was wondering whether you thought about it and whether there would be then an opportunity to think about transporting those sorts of risks across boundaries as well. The second um, group of questions was, um, here you are. The second group of questions was related to um, was related to the fact that there's also this measurement problem. Um, so if you are thinking about um, if you're thinking about what risk means, then it's not just about uh, then it's not just about um, the exposure to climate variability, but many other types of um, risks as well. And the last question was around. Um, defining just transitions and, uh, and also related to measurement and how you had thought about or were thinking about whether that could be mitigated by just at least as a first step understanding who are going to be the winners and losers. And by the way, I did have a concern about how you were classifying pro producers of risk and consumers of risk, right? Because producers and consumers could be the same people as well. But, but I guess I that, that wouldn't be transboundary. Uh, but, um, yeah, uh, it, it sort of also makes it, because in the political economy perspective, it's a very sensitive issue then to then say you're a producer of risk and a consumer of risk. And it sort of gives it a very, gives the consumers of risk a very passive role. Yeah, thanks for that, Joe. So on, on the, the language about producers and consumers of risk, for sure, we, we've actually switched to the language of producers and consumers away from the language of exporters and importers, because exporters sounded very deliberate, like countries knew that they were exporting this risk to somebody else for some perverse reason. So we, we are continuing to look for better language to describe this that makes it apparent that these risks are are moving, but perhaps no one is, is directly responsible. We'd like to avoid putting political responsibility for shuffling your risk around uh, without having a bit more evidence to, to say that that's definitely occurring. So if other people have uh, good suggestions on improved language, we'd be very happy to, to hear that. Um, on the question of disease and other risks that could be included in this, we haven't thought about disease flows specifically, but I think generally speaking, we, we really consider this to be a first attempt at beginning to understand where these risks where these risks might exist. This is the kind of thing that it would be very difficult to ask these questions without having some initial understanding of how the trade flows themselves are moving and where the agricultural risk may or may not be embedded. And this can then be built on to, to, to identify areas or relationships of concern that we can hopefully expand on in, in the future. Um, again, this is, this is the sort of data set that, that very few people have, have worked on in the past, and we know in the transboundary risk space that it's, it's very much evolving, that, that these questions are, are very much open and still remain to be answered. 40% um, Brazil to Bolivia, yes. So I, I think that that's correct to say that, that Bolivia would be sort of de facto receiving those risks. The question from our perspective then is, is what sorts of policy options exist for actors like 
Bolivia and Brazil to collectively manage these issues. So there are a couple of potential options here. We've done some work in the past on Senegal and, and Thailand, where there's a, a strong relationship between Senegal, who imports a lot of Thai rice. Um, and in the past, in, in I think the, the 2011 food price crisis, when Thai rice imports were heavily restricted, Senegal had huge price spikes and were basically unable to, to feed their people at cost, uh, and, and there were significant protests and, and riots in the streets, essentially, from this. So, in terms of adaptation options, you've got this kind of dual effect. So if you're Senegal, what do you do? Do you diversify your diet? Do you work to diversify your trading partners? Do you build grain storage? Um, those are all potential options, but might have different impacts in that country context, and would really need to be carefully considered there. At the same time, we know that an adaptation option for Thailand, which was to reduce their, their rice exports because they had this problem and needed to feed their people as well, so much food production is for domestic consumption, that one of their adaptation options that was really strong and useful for them was to, to reduce export, which had an adverse effect somewhere else. So, so this, this kind of brings us back to the, your last question about just transitions and how exactly we define this. And, and to be honest, I don't think we have an excellent definition of what this means in the risk space so far. Um, but, but we do, we are becoming increasingly aware that certain adaptation options and risk management options can have adverse effects on other people in other places and, and those need to be grappled with somehow. Very quick rejoinder. So my question, my point about the 40% from Brazil to Bolivia uh, was that this is essentially a measurement of trade concentration flows, right? Why is it uh, a risk for adaptation? For, for exactly that food security concern. Uh, because it, it's not only a measure of trade dependency, it's a, it's a measure of how important that import flow is to that country. So by having the added measure of, of import dependency, we, we can say with some, not, I wouldn't say very high certainty, but some degree of certainty that those imports from Brazil are particularly critical for Bolivian food security specifically. Um, so there is a food security dimension of this that's exacerbated by climate change. That's where the risk component comes from. Thank you. And now the floor is open. Please introduce yourselves. I'm going to take notes on my phone, um, and that's why I'm looking at it, but please go ahead. So three questions at a time, and then we'll ask Kevin. Hello, thank you very much uh, for the presentation. I'm Veronica Almes from DMA. Um, I just have one question on the, on the coffee example that, that you presented today. Um, considering, of course, that we are looking for um, adaptation and mitigation benefits. Um, so considering that um, coffee cultivation is actually one of the main drivers of deforestation, and deforestation is one of the main causes of climate change. So is the, the, the risk model, or not model, but the, the risk example that you presented today, considering under this systemic approach as well, um, the impacts on deforestation and land use change due to uh, increased uh, needs of um, um, land use change related to, to uh, forest, uh, to change the land from forest to agriculture, to increase the production of coffee cultivation, um, so this is one of my main questions. How, how can we address mitigation I impact under this, under this um, model or example that you presented? To whatever, Philip, like a board member now. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, no, thank you, Kevin. My name is uh, Demetrio. Um, uh, thanks for the presentation. Uh, it's just maybe to build a bit on this question from Joe and uh, Uzo Emerson, because normally in disaster risk uh, management, you either use probabilistic or deterministic model to quantify risk. So how you would uh, quantify the risk you show us if you don't use a model? And uh, where, in your opinion, the climate risk stops and the non-climate risk starts? Um, please, you mentioned the uh, grain crisis in 2011. I actually look at that at my time with the Office for Disaster Risk Reduction. And one of the main causes were the widespread wildfires in Russia, which is the grain uh, warehouse of the world. So you had a very interesting transboundary risk. I mean, you have fire in Russia, spike in grain prices, which affect food security in Africa. And the many case studies written into that model of transboundary risk. But in fact, the point is, uh, are those wildfire climate risk, or since it came out that were handmade, it's a non-climate risk? I mean, how we can cut what is climate-related from what is not? Thank you, uh, Jason Spensley, uh, Adaptation Planning and Project Preparation. Um, so as you know, as per uh, COP and board mandate, GCF supports national adaptation planning and other adaptation planning processes. Maybe we can think of transboundary adaptation planning. Um, I'm sure you've been doing some thinking on this. I'd, I'd welcome uh, your uh, views or any, any insights into transboundary adaptation planning activities, what those might look like, um, low-cost, high-impact, that potentially GCF could support. Great. Um, good, that's a lot to chew on. Um, so maybe working backwards. Uh, on transboundary adaptation planning, we have, we have done a bit of thinking about this thus far. We think that an obvious place to start uh, is with the regional bodies that already do some elements of regional adaptation planning. There are also some global bodies that are beginning to do a bit more work on this, like Global Adaptation Network, but they aren't quite as robust at this point. Um, I think one of the major issues in this space is that the, the risk assessment approaches, as we've already started to talk about, are, are quite new and quite thin, because these are really, uh, for early days, emerging questions, and I think a lot more work needs to be done to understand where the risks exist and how countries are linked to one another. So I think, in terms of adaptation planning, what really needs to be done first uh, is to get a better understanding of how the risks are linked and how the risks are moving in order to, to begin to, to plan collectively together. I think that said, we shouldn't take the planning element off the table. I think once we have some sort of indicative measure, even though it isn't a robust model where we can exactly quantify that this is the risk that links these two places, if we've identified a relationship that we think might be of interest, that's enough of a reason to start a conversation and have a, have a dialogue between those countries to say, okay, we know we have this, this collective interest, how can we work on it together? Um, I wish I had more robust options to offer you, but I think it's a bit too early in this space, unfortunately, to, to offer anything like that. Um, on the question of where climate risk starts and where non-climate risks begin, um, and particularly thinking about the, the wildfires in Russia that were also a source of, of this food security crisis, I think this is a pretty 
consistent issue in the adaptation space. Um, event attribution, as we know, is a really complex science and has come a lot further in recent years, but it's still not something that we're really comfortable doing in most cases. Uh, and as we start to think about adaptation versus risk management, generally speaking, it's just extraordinarily difficult, given the complexity of the systems, to parse, well, how much of this risk is climate-related and climate-specific. Um, based on the work that we, we've done in this area, it, in my opinion, I think it's, it's not really worthwhile to, to go through all of the time and effort to make those distinctions. And we would be much better off, as long as we can attribute some of the risk to a, a reasonable climate system through some sort of a theory of change that we know climate was a contributing factor to the risk that eventually resulted, I think that that's enough of a reason to, to support it and work on it uh, as the GCF or another climate-related actor. Um, and on the last question on systemic approaches and whether or not we've taken land use change and deforestation into account, uh, and particularly mitigation uh, impacts and co-benefits, I, I think that's another concern we have sort of with, with publishing these results in a way. I think one of the things that we're worried about is as countries realize, well, a huge amount of our coffee production is at risk, for example, and we rely a lot on our income that's generated from these coffee supply chains. Maybe the right thing to do if you're that country is to expand coffee production, right? You produce more or more intensively. You, you produce more uh, in, in ways that aren't necessarily environmentally beneficial or friendly, generally speaking. So I think that's definitely a worry we have with these results, and while we've not accounted for them in our modeling approaches, I think that's what, not modeling approaches, thought experiment approaches. I have to stop myself every time I say that. Um, while we've not accounted for it ourselves, I think it's a, another important reason that we keep these conversations in mind about the, the principles that we'd like to see embedded in how we collectively manage these risks. And, and again, I think the, the same thing I said to Joe is true in this case, is that this allows us to start asking questions about the mitigation co-benefits or the potential detriments to, to our mitigation efforts once we start to understand how these things might uh, exist and, and be moving. So it's, it's a starting place for those conversations, but we certainly don't have, an certainly don't have answers at this point. And, and Kevin, um, do you want to respond to Demetrius' point about the model? Uh, so what kind of model are you using, uh, probabilistic or risk-driven or, yeah, so, yeah. so it's really important. Yeah, just explaining that I think would help to perhaps explain some of the other questions that are related to climate non-climate sure. as well. Yeah, I think it's not probabilistic. Um, I, I would say it's closer to a deterministic model, but again, I would really hesitate to call it any sort of a robust modeling approach. We're, we're essentially using like a modified import dependency function um, that we've added a climate risk indicator to. Um, so again, not a robust model of future risk in any sort of capacity, but it's understanding that given the trade system as it exists now, and import dependency as it exists now, if we were to add a climate indicator to that, where does risk seem to exist? It's not forward-looking so much as it is trying to understand where risk might exist in the system presently if nothing were to change except for climate. It's, it's a starting point for thinking about these questions rather than a model or a risk approach. And then Sal and then Mark. Thank you. Thank you, Kevin, for the presentation. And my name is Emerson. I work for the Office of Governance Affairs. Um, 
one thing that we notice in the have noticed in the last 10 years is that so one of the low hanging fruits for adaptation is insurance so insurance is where organizations and countries find an entry point for trying to reduce their exposure to climate impacts but with that we have also seen lots of a perverse incentive for 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 insurance um, and we can see that in in the coffee industry as an example where subsidized insurance can also lead producers to not take the necessary measures to reduce their exposure to climate impacts. So I was wondering if uh, that is also something you guys took into consideration. And the other question is uh, going back to the the first comment I made in terms of testing the approach. Um, I think one of the things that we find hard is to convene the message to the necessary stakeholders because this is a process that's driven from bottom up, you know, from, from, from countries. So it's important that they understand this narrative and, and buy this story. So for us to, to take this forward and try to convince people it's important to show the probability that is attached to this risk to take place and what is the consequence of that happening. Um, of, course, of course, in monetary values, but beyond that. And I wonder if you guys have developed a narrative to sell this idea. Thanks, Solomon. <coughs> Thanks, Joe. Solomon, uh, you. Uh, I was just curious to know, uh, you guys did a crop-specific transboundary risk uh, and then classify country as exporting uh, risk or importing risk. Uh, I was wondering, climate impact is often uh, crop specific or sector specific, right? So a country might be risk importing in one commodity, uh, might not be the case for another, another commodity. So I think what is interesting when we talk about country level indicators is to figure out whether they are a net importer or a net exporter. Right, so to make a policy perspective, if you could comment on that. And also related to that is the sector aspect. We foca you focus here on agricultural commodities and, and what about other sector? Uh, again, when you discuss deal with country to country, that would be interesting. And this goes back to the model they indicated. I think the impact model is more of like a partial equilibrium modeling exercise and it doesn't take into account what is happening in another sector. Perhaps that's what you, you did. Uh, the second point I'd like to raise is how did you link this with uh, climate finance? So you are making the point that given countries import export risk and then you make the case for them to contribute to the climate finance, given this differentiated impact and how strong that argument could be. Thank you. Thanks. Um, Mark Jerome, Internal Audit. Internal audit. Uh, really suppose building on uh, Jason's comment. I'm, I'm, the global fund is country-driven. So the Green Climate Fund is country-driven. Country driven. <laughs> can we? No. Can it succeed if it is country-driven? Um, and we're now looking at tran no, uh, transboundary uh, risks. Can the Green Climate Fund succeed in its objective if we remain country-driven? Thank you. Well, I'm not going to start with that one for sure. I'm going to need a minute to think about that. 
Um, so on insurance and perverse incentives around this, uh, as it happens, Otis and I are submitting a proposal to a big Swedish insurer tomorrow uh, on this exact topic to do a little bit more work on this exact question. I think, generally speaking, what we're aware of is that there are a number of policy and financial instruments that exist to manage these risks, but in different contexts, they're likely to have different effects and for different communities. Uh, and a lot of context-specific work is going to need to be done to understand the incentive structures around those things and figure out how they can be best managed to assure that those uh, incentives are not, uh, th th those traps that you've identified are not fallen into. So again, not something we've thought about too much yet, but we're hoping to, to take on uh, in the future. Um, thinking about how we are selling this idea a little bit. One of the phrases that we've been thinking about quite a lot lately, uh, there's an academic, Maria Banda, from University of Toronto Law School that we work with quite frequently, um, who thinks about adaptation as a global public good. Um, so the way that we've been thinking about this very much uh, is in line with that conversation, is about how contributing to the adaptation of other countries not only contributes to you specifically uh, but, and, and to them and their activities specifically, but to, to the uh, resilience of the globe, generally speaking. This is, adaptation is in everyone's interest rather than in only the interest of the recipient country. So that's the angle that we've begun to take on this question. I think I, I agree that we need to make a better case to countries why this is specifically relevant to them, um, but, but that's the, the direction that we're beginning to go, and we think that it might be a, a particularly powerful direction. Um, on commodity differentiation and, and other sectors, Solomon, um, we do differentiate by commodity, so the crop impact models that we are using are specific to every individual commodity, um, so that has been accounted for. Um, other sectors we have not looked so much into. I think this is quite similar to the conversation about deforestation and, and mitigation co-benefits, but we haven't done so much looking into the, the impacts on other sectors at this point. But again, good directions to go uh, for future work, I think. Um, on the linkage to climate finance, I think this comes back to some extent to, to the adaptation as a, as a global public good conversation. I think that historically, and I think this is a strength of the climate finance regime, is that it has been, it's been so closely linked to these principles of equity through the UNFCCC process and, and the other funds through which these, these things flow. But I think that there is a risk in starting to think about risks as something that are transboundary and moving between places um, in, in stepping away from those things. And I think that it would be wise for us as people that are working in this policy space to make sure that, that those ideas about why we are contributing to the climate finance regime in the first place that are really based on the principles of the convention, the Paris Agreement, the GCF governing instrument. I think to make sure that those things remain in conversation with this, rather than taking this very efficiency-oriented approach to adaptation finance to benefit me as a transbound reactor, I think remains really important. Um, and on the last thing, can, can the GCF succeed and achieve its mandate if it remains country-driven? Um, I think so. I think it would be sacrilegious to say religious to say else, uh, and I would be quickly tossed out this window if I, if I did anything like that. Um, I, I think that there remains room to make the case to countries that this is something that's important to them. I think that the GCF as an institution that is full of experts and spends all day, every day, thinking about climate finance in a way that most government individuals do not in developing countries, there's room to say, 
there are these risks that we're aware of and that we're beginning to develop procedures to measure and to understand and to manage. And this is something that you should probably be concerned about. I think that that is well within the GCF's remit to say that, that this is still country-driven, this is something that we think that you might be interested in, and then provide the tools and help build the capacity to address those issues. So, so I, would, I would hope to take an approach where the GCF is able to, to work with countries to make it clear to them why this is something that is important to be considering. Thanks, Kevin. We have a question at that end, Greg, if you could get the mic across, please. No. Uh, yeah, exactly. Thank you. Last two questions after that, so Han, go ahead. Um, thanks. Afternoon, everyone. Orville Gray, Adaptation Planning. Um, not so much a question, but a comment on that, fine, that last part with the transboundary and the, 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 the position that was put forward. Um, the GCF also does engage in the private sector space, and the private sector space is one of those areas that we will have to do a lot more work with to push the climate change agenda forward, especially on adaptation and adaptation planning. And I think in that respect, we might be able to um, achieve um, what, you're, what you're referring to as opposed to trying to push it or change the discussion in terms of the country-driven um, approach, because I think we can maintain that focus while getting the benefits of most of the others through the, for instance, what we can leverage through the private sector, because by and large, a lot of these transboundary impacts are going to be um, resolved through the private sector and, uh, and uh, those um, sources there. But we can also leverage from the one UN policy that's being touted in terms of looking at the other conventions where things are happening. Um, looking at, for instance, what we do on the WTO, what we do with transboundary, um, other transboundary impacts, etc., and see how we can um, integrate the climate change um, concerns into those spheres where not much is happening at the moment. I mean, we're seeing stuff with Ike, um, the shipping industry and the airline industry, etc., but there are a lot of other little spheres where there's not so much action happening that maybe we can look to see how we can partner on those to build those out, similar to what we're doing at a great um, position right now with the SDGs. Thanks, Oren. Um, Andrew? Yeah, um, thank you. Um, Thank you, Kevin, for your presentation. Just to come back, um, we've spoke about this now a little bit, of saying, okay, what can, can be done, what could be done, country-driven country approach and so on. Um, I'm, I'm just remembering your first picture with those different avenues, um, so the, the people's avenue, the bias physics, um, then there was the finance as well and so on. I was just wondering if you have a first initial reaction for us as the GCF to say what different avenues we could look at from our perspective. I mean, there's definitely talk about the question of, okay, bias, physical one, we, we could look at projects that could look at that. But then from the finance and from the trade perspective, yes, maybe the private sector, but is there, is there any idea coming from your side already to what the GCF could do? Thank you. I think that was our last question. Great. Um, so on the, on the first comment about the, the private sector actors specifically, I think, I think that that's completely right. I think that private sector actors understand 
the language of risk already and are quite likely thinking about many of these things in their portfolios uh, currently. They might not be talking about it in terms of adaptation, but, but I, would, I would strongly suspect they are considering a lot of these things. Um, but at the same time, I would say that countries do have a role to play and, and I think should continue to have a role to play, uh, particularly for, again, these reasons of, of equity and, and thinking about just transitions in adaptation and risk management. Um, to, to leave this entirely up to countries looking out for their bottom line and their supply chains would be to overlook these questions about how we can preserve livelihoods and make sure that the vulnerable communities are, are looked after at the, as these transitions are occurring. So I think, I think that, yes, we should absolutely make sure that the private sector is strongly involved in these conversations, but I think to, to write off the country-driven approach entirely would be uh, to, to overlook something that's really important. Um, on which of these pathways that I think that the GCF can focus on. I think, I think you're completely right, Andreas. Biophysical is, is low-hanging fruit and it's an easy place to start, definitely. Um, I think in the trade case, especially where the goods that are being traded are quite easy conceptually to link to climate change, I think there are opportunities in that case as well. Um, I don't think that we're saying that all of this is something that needs to be done in the context of the GCF. Absolutely not. I think one of the things that we're really interested in is even taking this further outside of the climate policy space, generally speaking. I think that there are roles for actors like the World Trade Organization to play. We've we talked a little bit about the WT or about the FAO as well. Um, there are all manner of, of commissions that focus on transboundary rivers currently. Um, the, the Migration compact, for example, right? There are all of these other policy avenues that exist out there that haven't really been thinking about climate change so much lately, and perhaps it isn't in the GCF scope to handle all of these issues, uh, certainly, but, but I think more and more actors need to begin to consider the ways that, that climate change has a, a fingerprint on their activities and how when we think about adaptation planning in in, in our climate world, how we've when we've historically thought about it from a country bordered perspective, we, we might have been missing certain things. And I think if, if, if nothing else, if we can encourage countries to start to look outside their own borders and consider the ways that they intersect with these other compacts, policy processes and approaches, and then they can engage with those actors to figure out how to manage them in those contexts, I think that would be uh, a really helpful place to start. Thank you, Kevin. Um, can we have a round of applause, ladies and gentlemen? <laughs>